let's turn our Bibles to Galatians again, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we pray uh, that you'd give us that posture, that attitude that we have just sung about of humility uh, before your word, and we pray that you would make us hate the things that you hate and love the things that you love. For we ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Well, um, in our house growing up, um, we had one of those um, survival guides that you often see. These were the, um, the pre-Bear Grylls days. Um, and so I think it was um, an SAS one, something like that. And as little boys in our house, we absolutely loved this book. We would sort of fight over who could um, read it, three of us. Um, there was stuff in there about surviving in forests, surviving in the sea, and uh, I think there was even uh, advice about surviving a bear attack, which was uh, amazing, wonderful. Uh, why have I begun, begun uh, like that? Is it just telling you something about my past? Um, no. Um, as we saw last week, uh, this passage in Galatians from about verse 13 to the end, and much of it is about, uh, is written to Christians who are in danger and we are conflicted people. And we saw last week that there's a war uh, going on in, in churches that needs to end, a war with one another. And we also saw that there's a war that this side of the, the new creation will, will never end, the, the war inside us. And as we spend uh, more time in this passage, looking from verse 19 to the end, Paul is going to take us deeper into the conflict zone. And he's going to show us more and more about what it means to, to be at war. And to help us um, get into these verses, I want us to use our imagination a little bit. Um, three things I want us to see tonight. Uh, and the first is this. I want us to go down the pit. Go down the pit, verses 19 to 21. And hopefully what I'm uh, meaning by that should become obvious. But if you're um, in a war, one of the things you need to know is you need to know your enemy. You need to know what you're up against. And you can't fight a battle if you don't know your enemy. And in the Christian life, I think there's always a danger that uh, we can be naive. We can think that because God has forgiven us, that uh, we won't be tempted to do terrible things. And yet you don't have to be a Christian for very long before you realize that that's just not the case. And in verses 19 to 21, I think Paul wants to take us and make us look at this terrible pit full of sin. And he calls this pit the works of the flesh. And as we saw last time, he's talking here about the sinful nature, the, the part of us that does not want to do what God wants. And he begins talking about this pit, these sins. He says, the works of the flesh are evident um, this is really interesting, and what that means is clear. And what that points to is the fact that if we've become a Christian, 
we think very differently about sin now compared to the way we used to think of sin. Once we thought that sin was, well, just fine. Once we didn't really have a category for sin, but Paul's writing to Christians here and he says that we know it's evident. Once we just went along with all of this, but now because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, there has been a change. And in verses 19 to 21, Paul lists, I think I'm right in saying 15 different sins. It's really important to say that this is not um, an exhaustive list. Um, verse 21 adds, and things like these. It's not as if somehow we were, if we were able to keep from doing, prevent ourselves from doing all the things mentioned here, that we would be okay. Now, this is a kind of sample of the acts of the sinful nature. Now, Paul mentions various different types of sins. He begins by mentioning sexual sins. Paul begins with three of those and ends with one. And sexual sin is any sexual activity outside the lifelong covenant commitment of a heterosexual marriage. And even as I say those words, you and I will know just how contrary that is to the view in our culture and in so many churches. And yet scripture is just so clear. You and I live in a sex-saturated world. It is everywhere. We have taken a wonderful gift of, from God, a gift that God has given us, and we've abused it. And so tonight, as we look at these words, if you are engaged in any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage, God is not happy about that. It is a sin. It is something to confess, something to stop. You see, as we look at these words, here's a question to, to ponder. Are you and I, are we sexually continent people? And we use that language um, deliberately. Incontinence is not pleasant, is it? And sexual incontinence isn't pleasant either. And the world would tell us that it's absolutely fine to do what you want. But God's word says something really different. Maybe that contrast gets across something of the way that sin looks to God. Right next to sexual sins are religious sins, idolatry, sorcery, ways of, of relating to God that are, are superstitious or man-made. Near the end is the abuse of another of God's good gifts, alcohol. God is not ambivalent about any of these things. But I wonder, do you see that a lot of the list is made up of the kind of things we might not take that seriously? Uh, things we might not take as seriously as those I've already mentioned. And there's a whole bunch of what we might call relational sins. Um, enmity, strife, jealousy, etc. These are ways of harming other people made in God's image. 
Uh, the American author, um, Gore Vidal, um, he once said this, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies. And I think he was simply putting on paper what we are often afraid to admit, and that we can be very jealous of other people. And we can envy other people. And Paul would say, God would say, there is absolutely no place for this kind of attitude amongst professing Christians. God thinks of it as ugly, just as sexual sin is an offense to him. God takes this seriously too, maybe more seriously than we are sometimes tempted to take it. See, the amazing thing that the gospel has done is made us one. And that union was costly. It cost the blood of God's Son. It doesn't mean we have to all look the same or do the same kind of things. But when you and I, when we treat our brothers and sisters in any of the ways described here, then we are dishonoring the the blood-bought bride of Christ. And look at the warning in verse 21. Those who do these things, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I think it's um, important uh, to say the idea here is not of of an occasional slip up or, or maybe a mistake that leads to repentance. Now, the word uh, do here in the original, it refers to an ongoing, a persistent attitude. This is not saying that if a Christian ever sins in one of these ways, they are are somehow lost. No. But it is saying if we continue in these ways, if we do these things, if we indulge these things, if we love these things, if they become the pattern of our lives and we are just ambivalent about them, then we are not living as people heading to heaven. If we are doing any of these things tonight, we need to repent. We need to come back to the cross. We need to cry out to God for forgiveness. Maybe we need to build bridges with other believers. Maybe we need to repent. Sometimes looking down a pit can help us to fight. So we've seen the pit. Second thing I want us to do is look at the tree. Look at the tree, verses 22 to 23. And when we uh, lived in Edinburgh, one of our favorite places to go on a Saturday was um, the Botanic Gardens. And we've got lots of happy memories of going there. Uh, The maze, uh, the flowers, the plants, the coffee shop, all these Uh, good things that we enjoyed. And in verses 22 and 23, some of the most famous verses in the New Testament, it's as if Paul takes us out of that pit and he makes us stand next to a beautiful tree, a, a fruit tree. And if you've studied the Bible, if you've read it for any length of time, you'll know that that language like this, fruit tree language is used all through the Bible. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches, the blessed man, the flourishing man in Psalm 1, ultimately a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also a picture of all who are in him, who who drink deeply from God's word. But I think it's really interesting that Paul here, he talks 
about fruit. In verse 19, he's spoken about the works of the flesh. And given that he's drawing a contrast here, we might have expected him to talk about the works of the Spirit in verse 22. But just as the gifts of the Spirit come not from us, but from God, so also the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes from Him too. These are qualities, these are, these are traits the Holy Spirit forms in us as Christians. These are not just a, a list of things that we do in our own strength. Now, these are things that God Himself is working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And growth as Christians just like growth in a garden, takes a little bit of time. Um, if you're a new Christian, um, let that encourage you. If you're an old Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, let that encourage you too. Now, someone has said that we can group these, these nine uh, different things that Paul mentions in verse, verses 22 and 23 um, into three triads. Um, they've said the first three have to do with our relationship with God. Now, the second, our relationship with others. The final three, our relationship with ourselves. I don't know what you think of that. It could be helpful. But it's important to say that Paul speaks of fruit singular. He doesn't talk about fruits. And this is not a fruit salad. And if you don't like kiwi fruit, you can kind of um, fish that out. It's not the case if we look down this list and think, well, I'm, I'm quite patient, but, uh, well, maybe I'm not as gentle as I could be, that, that somehow that's sort of okay. No, God wants to, to work all of these things into all of us. But I think, um, above all, I think we should see these verses as a portrait of Christ, because He is the one that the Holy Spirit is conforming us to. He is the loving, joyful, peaceful one. And nobody related to God the Father like He did. He is patient, kind, good to His people. And His attitude towards us is not, as we would sometimes think, it is not impatient it is not harsh, it is full of love. Uh, Marianne and I, we watched the film um, A Beautiful Mind again recently. I think it just popped up on um, Netflix and we thought, uh, we've not got anything to do, should we watch that tonight? And we did. It tells uh, the story of John Nash, who was uh, a brilliant uh, mathematician who struggled with schizophrenia. And I think we could say that the inner life of Jesus, that the mind of Jesus is a beautiful mind. And that mind, it showed itself in, in his actions on earth. He lived a life marked by faithfulness. Jesus was the one who was gentle and lowly in heart. There were no blips in his self-control. 
And he is the one that we are united to by faith if we put our trust in him. He is the one who is the source of our life. He's the one we're to look to. And I think if you and I, if we want more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the answer, how we get that, is to look to him. Gaze at him. Think about him. Consider him. Read about him. So you and I, we become what we worship. The more we look down the pit, the more we linger and love the works of the flesh, well, the uglier our lives become. But the more we look at Christ, the more we become like him. And the more we become our true selves in him as well. A friend of mine was um, adopted at a young age. And as he grew up, um, sometimes people who, who didn't know that he had been adopted um, as a child, they would say this to him. They would say, you look so like your dad. And it's a, a lovely thought, isn't it? Because, because the more time he spent with his dad... The more he experienced his love, the more he enjoyed that, that relationship that he had with him, well, in a very real way, the more he did actually start to look more and more like him or be like him. And the same is true for us as adopted children of our Heavenly Father, as those who belong to Christ, as those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. We're called to, to live this way. We're called to do these things. But even as we fail, you and I, we can have confidence that we will one day be the kind of people Paul describes in these verses. And as we wait for that day, I think what we're called to do is to seek what is in keeping with the family likeness. Seek what is in keeping with the family likeness. Seek these things, these good, these wonderful things in verses 22 and 23, not those things that would damage us and hurt us and draw us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we're called to look down a pit, I think. We're called to look at a tree, but we're also called to follow the way follow the way. That's um, verses uh, 24 to the end. And I think when Paul wrote verse 24, he, he is highly likely he may have had the words of Jesus in his ears. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would like to start out as my disciple, he needs to deny himself. He needs to take up his cross. He needs to follow me. There's never been an invitation like that, has there? And Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, he says, with its passions and desires. And what Paul's talking about here is um, taking a, a decisive course of action. He's imagining us nailing our, our sinful desires to the cross. This is something that happens when we begin the Christian life. What you and I do is say one big no to sin, 
and one big yes to Jesus Christ. But that no and that yes is almost always agonizing. Because it means that we have to turn away from sin, sin we love. It maybe means turning away from people we love for some people. It's a choice. It's a, it's a one-time action. And the big uh, theological word for this, uh, this kind of behavior is mortification. And we don't usually use language like that, do we? We only use the word mortify if we're, we're embarrassed or ashamed of something. And yet it's a really important idea in the Christian life. As Paul says in Romans 6, we are to, to count ourselves dead to sin. We are under a new master. We are new creations. We're called to think and live and act differently towards our sin, towards things that we used to love. And yet, though this is a one-time act at the beginning of the Christian life, well, it's also an ongoing act too. The commentators, they point out that, that crucifixion was a painful, a gradual process. And like the death of Jesus, our discipleship, well, it will be painful. And it will be gradual. And so tonight, are there things you would never watch? Are there places that you need to stop going? Are there sins that you need to run from? Or are you just so free that you can do what you like? I'm Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary who worked in the Congo. And uh, during the Congolese war, she suffered a terribly horrific treatment. And I remember um, hearing her speak when I was a student. Um, she was in um, her late 70s, I think. Uh, there was 250 of us uh, packed into the Meston Lecture Theater at Aberdeen University. And it was right at the end of term. And we were just spellbound by this woman. And I think a lot of us that night, we realized we didn't really know much about what the Christian life was really about. Uh, this uh, woman, Helen Rosevere, she said that in the morning when she used to drink uh, her coffee, she would imagine her, herself as a great kind of letter I. And what she would do as she drank her coffee is she would ask God to cross out her eye. And what she meant by that was make her whole life more and more shaped by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was something that she did to try and help herself every day as she had her coffee to, to remember the, the, who and what she was being changed into. This is what it means to die daily. This is the kind of life that you and I are called to live. But Paul gives us, I think, a second aspect of following uh, this way in verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
And this is what we might say that this is like the positive side of our sanctification. If mortification has a more kind of negative uh, connotation, this is, this is more positive, I think. And just as verse 13 began with, with a military idea of not giving the flesh a foothold, a stronghold, an opportunity, so Paul at the end here, he ends with another military idea too. It's army imagery in verse 25. And as Christians, you and I, we are to keep in line with the way of God's Spirit like troops in battle. And we are those who live by the Spirit. That is something God has done. We are called to keep in time, keep in step with the kinds of things that God, the Holy Spirit, values and loves. And if you and I live like that, it will mean that sometimes we will be out of step with the world. But the truth about that is it's just normal Christianity for that to be the case. I think there's been, well, there has been, hasn't there, lots in this letter about legalism. But I think it's really important to say that in turning away from from that kind of behavior or sin, God is not saying that the Christian life is an effortless life, an effort-free life. You and I are not called to just lie back The Christian life is an ongoing struggle. It is a race. It is a war. You and I are called to fight. We are in an army. But one of the best things about being in an army is that we don't fight alone. No, we're surrounded tonight by our brothers and sisters in Christ. They fight with us. We need one another. And we cannot live the spirit-filled life without other Christians. And Paul's going to talk more about this next time. But for now, I want us to remember that we don't just have each other in the fight. No, you and I have the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to close by um, quoting from someone. This is an American minister called James Russell Miller. And he ministered at the end of the, the 19th century. A few um, years ago, a friend passed on a piece that he wrote called On the Shore of Glory. And it was written to help Christians live with the end in view, to help Christians live the kind of life that Paul is wanting us to, to be drawn towards here. Here's the very end of that beautiful piece of writing. He writes this, only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only he can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calmness. Only he can purify that sinful fountain within us. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. Such a life grows brighter even to its close. For such a life, death has no terrors. Tokens, he writes this, the tokens of its approach are but the land birds lighting on the shrouds, telling the weary mariner that he is nearing the haven. And he says this, the end 
of that life is but the touching of the weather-beaten keel on the shore of glory. That is the hope, that is the kind of life we have to look forward to as Christians. One day reaching the safe harbor, one day being with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may we who belong to him, may we keep in step with the Spirit as we look forward to enjoying our inheritance in this wonderful kingdom that he's called us to. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we confess that so often we're tempted to drift away from you. And yet we thank you that you never let go of us. And so we pray, work in us these things. Make us love, as we prayed earlier, the things that you love. Make us hate the things that you hate. And make us people eager and, and looking forward to the day when we will see the Lord Jesus Christ and live with him. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to close our service tonight by singing a great um, hymn all about the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross. Uh, let's stand and sing these words together.